This is Zach Twomley from When Diplomacy Fails, and you are listening to A History of Hannibal. Specifically, you are listening to Episode 12, The Siege of Lilibium, Part 3, Hamilcar Barca. Enjoy! Carthage is not one of the most well-known historical topics. I'm sure you haven't ever heard of any of the Carthaginian generals I've mentioned thus far. But we are about to get into the most famous Carthaginian family, the Barkid family. Very little is known about the Barkids before Hamilcar. We don't even know the names of Hamilcar's parents. But some suspect the family originated from Cyrene. But by this point, the family was firmly part of the aristocracy. As he receives the command in Sicily and enters our narrative, Hamilcar was about 30 years old. In 247 BC, Hamilcar began taking his part in the war by making raids on Locri and Bruti, on the south coast of Italy, before advancing on Panormus and taking the nearby settlement of Hercate. Which, for those of you not familiar with the towns of 3rd century BC Sicily, is between Panormus and Eryx. For those of you still confused, it is on the north coast, on the western side of the island. Hamilcar considered Hercate the best place in the region to set up a permanent base, with its high ground, good pastureland, its safe harbour being easily defensible and well supplied. While Hecate had these benefits, he was also isolated. There were no nearby allies or friendly cities where he could get help. As the saying goes, though, fortune favours the bold. And he was indeed bold, making a raid on Cumae, near Naples. The Romans reacted to this by making camp outside Panormus, half a mile from Hamilcar. I think Polybius puts it very well when he says what happened next, as I quote from Book 1, chapters 57 and 58. Hamilcar's campaign in Sicily against the Romans might be compared to a boxing match, in which two champions, both perfect in training and both distinguished for their courage, meet to fight for a prize. As the contest develops, and the two exchange blow after blow, without a moment's pause, it is out of the question, either for the combatants or the spectators, to anticipate or to keep count of every attack and every hit. Nevertheless, it is possible from the general activity of the two, and from the determination which they display to obtain a sufficiently clear impression of their skill, their strength, and their courage. So it was with these two commanders. The various causes which prompted their daily operations and the tactical details of these are far too numerous for any writer to describe, and would prove both tedious and unprofitable to read since every day brought about its ambushes on one side or the other, and its sorties and 
counterattacks. But a general summing up of the leadership of the two men and of the results of their rival efforts may provide a clearer picture of the facts. Certainly, no strategies were left untried, whether orthodox tactics, ruses, occasioned by some local factor or pressure of circumstances, or the kind of operation which is inspired by a forceful and adventurous initiative. However, there were several reasons why the campaign could not be brought to a decisive issue. In the first place, the forces on either side were equally matched. Secondly, their respective entrenchments were so strongly fortified as to be virtually impregnable. And lastly, the two camps were pitched only a very small distance from one another. This was the main reason why the two armies, although they clashed repeatedly at certain places, never ventured a decisive battle. The losses in these actions were confined to the men who fell in hand-to-hand combat. The troops who gave ground were accustomed to getting themselves immediately out of trouble by retiring behind their defences, from which they would later sally forth and resume the fighting. But fortune, like a good umpire in the games, suddenly brought about an unexpected change in the contest. What Polybius means by that comment is that the umpire would make a decision between two evenly matched opponents, so there would be a victor. So, the Romans were encamped in several locations, right by Herectae and Panormus, but also by Eryx, at the height and foot of the mountain. Hamilcar, though, managed to capture the town which was between the two positions, trapping the Romans on the top of the mountain. Both sides fought fiercely to win this battle, and it was waged for two years while the war continued in other places. So, this particular fight was a stalemate. Fabius Pictor, the first of the great Roman historians, states that both sides left this particular conflict exhausted and demoralised. But Polybius denies this, saying that both sides left the conflict undefeated like champions. Polybius equates these last few years of the land war as to a fight between two gamecocks who will continue to fight each other to the death through sheer courage after they have lost the use of their wings through exhaustion. Indeed, for five years, the Romans and Carthaginians battled on land to try and win the war until they were both exhausted. When the fight to the death would take place with the battle of the Agates Islands in 242 BC. The Carthaginians had total control of the seas. For the last five years, the Romans had stuck firmly to land warfare. But, as in those five years they hadn't achieved anything, it was obvious to all that this tactic was not working. If they wanted to win the war, the only thing they could do was to claim a decisive victory on the sea. 
if they could defeat the Punic fleet, then Hamilcar could be isolated. But the treasury was empty. It was the generosity of the leading citizens that funded this fleet. Each man, or a small group of men, sought to fund a quinqueream, on the understanding that they would be repaid once the war was won. By doing this, a fleet of 200 ships was built, and set sail at the beginning of the summer of 242 BC, under the command of Gaius Lutatius. The Carthaginians were startled by the sudden appearance of the Roman fleet, and returned to Carthage. Lutatius took advantage of this to capture the harbour at Rapana, and the roadsteads near Lilabium. He then put Drapana under siege. While he tried desperately to capture the city, he was mindful of the future. He knew the Carthaginian fleet would return, and so trained his fleets, readying them for the real purpose of the expedition, the destruction of the Carthaginian fleet. At Carthage, the Punic forces were deciding how best to deal with the Roman menace. The fleet was placed under the control of Hanno, who was to sail with provisions to Irex. Once there, he would drop off supplies, and pick up troops trained as marines, as well as Hamilcar, in preparation for the coming battle. Things did not go to plan. Word reached Lutatius of Hanno's arrival at a place known as Holy Isle, and of his future plans. He therefore gathered up his best troops as marines, and sailed to the island of Agusa, just off the coast of Lilibium. As the day of the battle broke, the weather was stormy. Lutatius had a decision to make. Risk battle in the bad weather, which favoured Hanno, or wait and fight a strong Carthaginian force in better weather. Lutatius decided to gamble and fight now. Victory, and he would be hailed as a brilliant general. Defeat, and he would be declared a fool, like Pulcher and Scipio Asina before him. The circumstances of battle were the opposite of what it was at Drapana. The well-trained Roman crews, which were in redesigned, lightened ships, facing the inexperienced Carthaginian crews with their heavy ships. The result, accordingly, was the opposite of what it was at Drapana. Immediately, the Carthaginians were outmatched, being bested again and again, until they soon fled. Fifty ships were sunk, and seventy were captured with their crews. The Carthaginians fled to Holy Isle, while Lutatius went to Lilibium. Word reached Carthage of what had happened. They decided to take stock, and plan for what to do now. But their plans did not move very far. You see, they couldn't get any troops to Sicily, as they had no fleet. This would mean they would have to abandon Sicily. But all their troops were on Sicily. So if they did that, 
then they would have no troops to fight the war. With no idea what to do, they told Hamilcar to decide. Hamilcar was an excellent commander, and also a prudent one. He knew there was no hope of victory. To save his troops, Hamilcar sent a delegation to negotiate peace. Lutatius agreed to negotiate. The terms were, to quote from Polybius, Book 1, Chapter 62, There shall be friendship between the Carthaginians and the Romans on the following terms, provided that they are ratified by the Roman people. The Carthaginians shall evacuate the whole of Sicily. They shall not make war upon Hiero, nor bear any arms against the Syracusans, nor their allies. The Carthaginians shall give up to the Romans all prisoners without ransom. The Carthaginians shall pay to the Romans 2,200 Euboean talons of silver, over a period of twenty years. The Roman people did not accept these terms. A commission of ten was sent to Sicily to make minor alterations. The indemnity was increased by a thousand talents, and the amount of time for the repayment was reduced to ten years. A demand was also added that the Carthaginians evacuate all islands lying between Sicily and Italy. And so, that was that. The Lebaeum, and the rest of Sicily, was taken by the Romans. The First Punic War was won. Just how did they do it? Several reasons. Perseverance is one. The Romans did not give up when they were defeated by the Carthaginians. And the weather, again and again. Another fleet was raised. More men were recruited. As Hiero recognised early on in the war, the Romans had a vastly superior manpower potential. When the armies were struggling and the treasury was empty, Italy was much better prepared to dig in than Africa was. The Romans were greatly aided through incompetent Carthaginian generals. Only Xanthippus and Hamilcar were able to do real damage and scare the Romans. The rest took advantage of even worse generalship by the Romans. I think Mike Duncan of the History of Rome podcast said it best when he said the First Punic War was a war defined by bad generalship. While the Romans made an astonishing number of mistakes, they would learn from them, while Carthage would fail to learn from hers. As always, if you want to find out more about the show, visit us at all the usual places online. Their website, thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com The Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast The Twitter page, twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod The YouTube page, youtube.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast The email address, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com And the History Podcast Facebook group, 
A member of this group is none other than Zach Twamley of the When Diplomacy Fails podcast, who ever so kindly introduced today's show. In this podcast, Zach goes throughout history to find what we all know of the very best bits, the wars. Whether it be the Second Punic War or the American Revolution, Zach looks at the build-up to, the breakout and the consequences. So yeah, the When Diplomacy Fails podcast. Go check that out. Thanks to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. Join me next week, when we will enter into the interbellum. We will, in the coming episodes, look at Rome's actions in the interbellum, before moving on to what Carthage was doing in Africa. And finally, what Hamilcar Barker was doing in Spain. We'll look at his actions, those of his son-in-law Hasdrubal, and those of his son. The son who was born in the last years of the First Punic War. The son who, according to legend, swore to his father that he would always be the enemy of Rome. The son who would become one of the most formidable and brilliant generals classical world. <laughs>